Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, hardcore dharma, consciousness hacking, emptiness, and more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the podcast, and in this episode I'm speaking with Chandra Easton. I first met Chandra when she was teaching out of the former Against the Stream location in the Mission in San Francisco, and you'll hear that we talk about what's become of that in the meantime during the show. Chandra Easton is a teacher and translator of Tibetan Buddhism who focuses on the lineage of the 11th century yogini Maching Labdron, and also of Lama Sultan Alioni, founder of the Taramandala Retreat Center. Chandra has taught Buddhism and shadow yoga for 13 years and co-translated the book Sublime Dharma, a compilation of two texts on the great perfection. And now, the episode that I call Feminism, Sexual Misconduct, and the Guru in Buddhism with Chandra Easton. Chandra, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Yeah, I haven't seen you in a long time. I used to run into you there every once in a while at Against the Stream in San Francisco. Yes, it's been a while and lots of changes there, as we know. I was there last night teaching and the students took over and formed the San Francisco Dharma Collective. So it's no longer Against the Stream. It's a Sangha-led teacherless group that will be functioning out of that same space at 2701 Folsom. So I'm very excited about that, that that will be great. I think that's a great next step. I think that's probably where a lot of sanghas or spiritual communities could go. Yes. So you haven't been there in a while. I think you're in Colorado. Yeah. Interestingly enough, as the changes began at Against the Stream, I was in process of packing up our home in Berkeley, California, and planning and making the move to Durango, Colorado, something we had been planning for over a year. And so the transition was happening on many levels away from the Bay Area and also into a new chapter of my life. I just accepted a new position at Tara Mandala Retreat Center in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, founded by Lama Tsultra Malioni as the assistant spiritual director working with her to help uh, bring her vision into being. I've been working with Tara Mandala for many years and as a lead authorized teacher and a lopan here, which simply means teacher, and helping to continue the teaching. So it's been a wonderful move. I'm falling in love with Colorado, I have to say. It's taking my breath away, the fall colors, the change of the seasons. And Durango is about an hour and a half away from Pagosa Springs and Tara Mandala. It's a nice little town to raise kids. It's family friendly. It has just enough culture to not have total culture shock moving out of the Bay Area. So it's been a good move and we're really enjoying being here. Yeah, I lived in Colorado for about 15 years in Boulder and it is truly one of the most beautiful places on earth. I just love the nature there. I love the mountains, the air, the sky, the whole thing is just amazingly beautiful. Mm. Without a doubt. So you are at Taramandala, which is a woman-led sangha, correct? Yeah, I guess you could say that. It was founded by Lama Tsultra Malioni, who is a Western woman, who was the first Western woman to be ordained by His Holiness the 16th Karmapa in the 60s. And she was in her early 20s, 
was a nun for many years and then eventually found it was more suitable for her to give her vows back and continue practicing as a layperson. And she says that during her years as a nun living in India, which if you've been to India, you know how challenging that can be in terms of not just culture shock, but also health-wise and other factors. She had a vision of creating a community, a practice community in America where people could come and not have to travel so far and leave their families and put up with the different stomach bugs that you might get while you're (laughs) in India. And so she had this vision. And then in the 90s, she co-founded it with her husband. So it was co-led, you know, by her and her husband, Dave Petit, who tragically died about 10 years ago at age 55, died in his sleep. We think it's of a heart attack. So she is now leading it on her own, but it was definitely co-created by them both as a place where people could come and do deep retreat. We have solitary retreat cabins here. We have other structures and a residence hall where people can stay. And there's a three-story temple. It's called the Tara Trikaya temple or the three form or three body temple, meaning the Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya. So each level represents those three bodies or three dimensions, you could say, of reality or our perception. And there are 21 three-quarter life-size Tara statues in the Nirmanakaya, the ground level temple. And then the central figure on the shrine or the altar is Machiglaptran, who founded the Chud lineage in Tibet in the 11th century, a woman yogini and teacher, and who taught on meditation, nature of mind. But she's most well known for the teachings of Chud, which means severance, traditionally done with a bell and a drum. Allowing the demons to devour your body, if I recall. <laughs> so I wouldn't put it that way. What, what, we, what you do, <laughs> that sounds really interesting, but it's like that. But what it is, is in the process of the meditation and the prayers, the practitioner imagines that their body becomes nectar. And then they offer that nectar to the demons, those karmic debtors, obstacle makers, illness bearers. But first, before that, you offer it to the Buddhas and the Bodhisattvas, the protectors, and also beings of the six realms or six classes. So it's like a big feast. And it's all done through visualization, of course. It's not literal. (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing is, is that before you offer, you know, before you transform your body into nectar, your consciousness leaves the body through the crown aperture, like in the poa practice and other practices you would find throughout tantric traditions in India, where one leaves the physical form and either becomes a deity or moves from one body to the next. And it's called poa in Tibetan or transference of consciousness. So there's an aspect of poa in the Chud practice where one leaves the material body and becomes the blue-black Dakini, Krodi Kali, or Trema, and then presides over the feast as the blue-black Dakini of Trema. So it's a very uh, dynamic and transformative practice that helps to let go of attachment and over-identification onto, one could say, our small sense of self, and open into something greater, and then cultivate generosity One of the paramitas, as you know, generosity, one of the perfections or the practices within Buddhism of offering that which we normally hold most dearest, which is our body, 
So visualizing offering that and feeding all demons, the Buddhas, the six class beings, the humans, the animals, and so on, and satiating them until complete satisfaction. So it is kind of like an act of generosity, an extreme act, but it's a visualized act. <laughs> yeah, delightfully shamanic and trippy. It's Isn't it uh, originally from the Bin tradition? Uh, yes, they say that the practice of Chud is a combination of the shamanic Bun, or the indigenous tradition within Tibet, as well as very much rooted in the Mahayana teachings of Prajna Paramita and emptiness. Because really, in order to do the practice effectively, you have to really understand emptiness of self and emptiness of phenomenon, twofold emptiness, one would say, in the Mahayana teachings. And so, because if you're still grasping at a solidly existing self, then it's hard to imagine that you would even want to dissolve your body into nectar and offer it to others, right? But if you understand that we are interdependent arisings and we are not just this body, then you can open up into a greater potential. So yes, it's very shamanic, but it's also very much rooted in the teachings of the Heart Sutra. You would find that within the Prajnaparamita corpus of teachings that came out of the Mahayana era of Indian Buddhism. And is this the kind of thing that, uh, because it's a tantric practice, you need like 30 years of initiations before they let you do it? Or is it mm -hmm. more available to the average practitioner? That's a great question, because different teachers have different approaches. The Chud practice is found within all the main lineages in Tibetan Buddhism, the Nyingma, the Kagyu, the Sakya, and the Geluk. It's one of the only teachings that permeated all those four traditions, and there are hundreds of different styles and kinds of Chud practices. And so there are different ways of teaching it, depending on what lineage, what teacher you're studying with. Lama Tsultram learned the Chud practice from one of her main teachers, who was kind of an iconoclast, Chugyal Namkai Norbu Rinpoche, who just passed away, in fact. And he was one of the first Tibetan tokus or reincarnated lamas to come to the West and teach Buddhism. And he was sent to Italy by His Holiness the Dalai Lama to uh, teach with uh, Giuseppe Tucci at the university in Rome. And Namkai Norbu was a scholar, a linguist, an incredible practitioner and his main kind of rebellious or revolutionary approaches was to not require 30 years of preliminary foundational practices and all of that. He felt that Dzogchen and also Chud was appropriate and very useful for our time. And in fact, there was an old prophecy from Padmasambhava, the great tantric adept who came from India to Tibet, who brought tantric Buddhism from India into Tibet in the 8th century. And Padmasambhava said that when the iron bird flies, Dzogchen, or the great perfection teachings, will travel to the West and benefit many people. And so Namkai Norbu was working from that perspective. And so he, <laughs> he angered a lot of the traditionalists by teaching Dzogchen and Chud, and did not require a lot of preliminary practices, which I think has its merits. Some people, if they have karma or connection with the teachings and they're ripe and ready, it can be very appropriate. 
but for other people, not so much. But they say that these teachings of Chud and Dzogchen, for example, and others, are self-secret. What it means is that they will remain secret for those who are not ready to grok them or go deeper into them. That even if a teacher is teaching the highest teachings to a group of a hundred people, if only one or two of those people are ready for those teachings, they'll get that. And then the others, in some way, because these teachings are what are called self-secret, they'll just kind of go over their heads. You know, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've definitely had that experience where I know I've received teachings or heard various topics in the past, but I didn't get it until years later, then it suddenly opens up and becomes more accessible. I think it's all like that. I mean, I feel like yeah. I heard all the most important teachings early on and understood none of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these years later, some of them are starting to finally make sense. Yeah. Now, you know, for uh, many listeners, this style of practice, like dissolving your body into some kind of amrita or nectar and then allowing buddhas and various beings to devour it and all that just sounds like complete nonsense in <laughs> total fantasy land and so i'm curious are you personally encountering this as some kind of ontological statement about reality or as simply an effective and skillful visualization, or something else? I totally hear you, and I sympathize with people who feel like, I don't want to do that, or that doesn't make any sense. In my experience, I do teach it. So in my experience with students, some people love it, and they're like, oh, this is so amazing, and I really connect with it and feel it intuitively. And other people are like, this is a little too far out for me. And I totally respect and appreciate both of those reactions. And I do feel like this practice, as well as other tantric practices where you're working with sound and visualization and mantra and energy and light, for example, visualizing light streaming from your heart and then receiving it back from various deities or seed syllables, bija, mantras, and so on. It's a technology that was developed in India many years ago. It arose, you know, both within the Vedic tradition and the Buddhist tradition. My research shows that it started arising maybe as early as the 4th and 5th centuries CE, but didn't really get codified and written down until the 7th, 8th, and 9th centuries. But Tantra in and of itself was a tradition that brought forth these various technologies into both the, you could say, patriarchal or structured Vedic tradition, as well as the more structured and patriarchal tradition of Buddhism at the time. So it also brings in other elements, such as honoring the feminine and masculine equally, and uh, lots of changes, like integrating the sensory stimuli that come in through our senses into the path of awakening. So not just trying to be completely pure and turning away from samsara or the cycle of existence as something that's bad and only leads to suffering, but actually turning towards it and uh, using the emotional life, the sensory input as fuel for waking up. And so this technology of Chud is very much based on that. And I do think it is skillful means, one could say, or upaya, for those who have a connection with it or a resonance with it. It can help 
transform our perception of who we think we are. One of my Tibetan teachers said, there are many different ways to realize emptiness, which is a core goal, you could say, in, in all of the different streams of Buddhism, whether it's the early, middle, or later streams. One would use different languaging depending on which stream or teaching era you're in. But the main point of Buddhism is really to release our grasping and craving onto pleasures or release our aversion and like hating on or pushing away those things that we don't like and to drop into our deeper wellspring or source of Buddha nature, one would say, or nirvana, achieve enlightenment, right? And the way to do that is to purify and to let go of our clinging onto things as being solidly real and permanent, but rather to recognize the empty nature of our own persona, our own being, our own body and mind matrix, and also the empty nature of all phenomena that appear outside of us. And ultimately to see that it's a co-arising, that everything arises due to my perception of it in terms of my own personal experience of the world and my sense of self. And so... This teacher said you can contemplate emptiness and impermanence kind of mentally and realize, oh, everything that's born eventually dies, so therefore it's not permanent. You can analyze your five skandhas or the five different aspects of our psycho-spiritual makeup, which is the traditional way of realizing the empty nature of self, the five skandhas or five heaps in English. What I'm trying to say is that the chud is another way of realizing emptiness where we let go of our normal way of identifying with who we are and we let ourselves become something different. This is the whole idea behind deity yoga, which is for a period of time, you just imagine, oh, I'm Tara. And how does it feel to be an enlightened Buddha? Or I'm Avalokiteshvara. How does it feel to be a being of light, fully embodying love and compassion? And this is another way of shaking your normal sense of self or the structure of who you think you are and allowing space for something different. Yes, so as we learn that the ego is essentially a construction, the sense of self is a fabrication out of various streams of experience and sensory input, it's possible to play around with that and take on new senses of self and new egos, even egos of deities kind of an interesting way to play with reconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, yes, and all of that is always influenced by the motivation of compassion, right? We're doing this so that we can heal and wake up and become more integrated people and beings so that we can be of benefit for others. And so that motivation always needs to pervade no matter what practice we're doing, whether it's sutric or tantric early or later teachings and styles of practices. And why would you say that it needs to be part of every part of practice? <laughs> well, you know, going back to kind of more of just an understanding of karma, which literally means cause and effect, action is the root of karma is kr, which means action. To do something. And yeah. to do something, yeah. I know in modern vernacular, people say, oh, that's my karma. It's always got this negative connotation. Not always, but can have that. But it doesn't. It's kind of a neutral thing. There can be positive, neutral, and negative karma, depending on what we do. 
but also more deeply, depending on our motivation for what we do. And so in really early teachings, even in the Buddha's teachings, he taught on karma and how important it is to have a good motivation when we do actions. So even kind of a seemingly fierce or angry action, if it's done with love, like a mother saying, don't run out into the street or something like that. If it's done with compassion, then it has uh, positive repercussions, right? And so that becomes more prominent in Mahayana, in the middle phase of the great vehicle, the emphasis on motivation becomes more prominent than before. It's less about following the rules and the vows and more about, well, what is your motivation behind your action? And then this idea of bodhicitta becomes even more prominent. It was always there, love and compassion. But this word bodhicitta means the spirit or the mind of awakening for the benefit of all beings. And so not just for ourselves, although we're included in that all beings category. And so the why, the why is that this is the whole point. The Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Great masters throughout the ages have said, it's all love, you know, I mean, Jesus. That the absolute nature of who we really are is that of love. And practice is about coming back to that and realizing that and not getting caught in the drama or the struggle of trying to win over others to gain our own happiness, but rather to see that my healing and my awakening in my life is interrelated and wrapped up in everybody else's. And so recognizing that is a very important part of the practice. And when you get into Tantra, this becomes even more imperative to have that nice, good foundation in love, loving kindness, metta, and compassion, karuna, and so on, because it's said that the tantric path is very powerful. You're working with energy, you're working with sound, and you're developing what are called paranormal abilities even. You could translate the word siddhi as that type of being able to read minds, being able to speed walk, being able to be clairvoyant into the future or prospectively or retrospectively see into the past. And so with this potency of the powers that can accumulate in the tantric path, if one's heart isn't in the right place, it can go astray, it can lead the teacher and then the student as well into very dangerous and hurtful places. And I think we see that in a lot of the Tibetan communities, not a lot, but in some of the Tibetan communities, we have the truth coming to the surface of misconduct by the so-called guru or the lama, the teacher or the leader of the spiritual community. And I think that the key problem is that the heart, the compassion, and the discipline and the conduct of the teacher has become very lax. And I, I'd love to talk more about that. Yes. So here you are at Tara Mandala. And Tara is, of course, a female gendered deity or non-deity, whatever we want to say. You can say Buddha. Buddha. And, you know, you're the main teacher there is Sultra Malioni and uh, a woman. And the practice that you, Chandra, teach quite often is Chud, which, again, was created by a female teacher long ago. So there's a lot of feminine energy going on in the work you're doing. And I'm curious 
if you feel that bears any relationship to this whole idea of guru misconduct or what you have to say about the feminine in Buddhism, which, as far as I can tell, has been greatly uh, oppressed. Yeah, thank you for that question. This is a topic that's really close to my heart. You know, I was raised from the age of five on as a Buddhist by my mother, who became a student of His Holiness the Karmapa in the late 70s. And I have very wonderful memories of that time, and I feel a very rich connection to this tradition. But then in my early 20s, when I began to take my path more seriously and met a teacher in the early 90s, a Tibetan Lama who had come from Eastern Tibet. He was at Tertun, a treasure revealer, very magnetic and powerful teacher. And there was a lot of kind of frenzy about, oh, this great teacher is coming. He's never come to the West before. My parents came down to study with him. I became a student of him. And I received my nundro from him, the preliminary practices and instructions on how to begin my path. And everything was really great. And then one day I was in his quarters uh, with, with, with a bunch of other students and the translator, and we were discussing Dharma. And then suddenly out front, this is in Los Angeles, and the Dharma Center was in a home that one of his students had given to this community to form a Dharma center in. So out front of the house, there was this big screech and a car crash. And everybody looked up, oh my God, what is that? What happened? Everybody ran out of the room to go check. And I was getting up to go and follow them. And the Lama said to me, no, stay. And he beckoned me to him. And he was sitting on his bed. And I thought, wow, does he need something? What does he want? So I went up and he kind of beckoned me closer to him. So I got real close up to him as if he was going to whisper something into my ear. And instead of doing that, he put his hand on my shirt and grabbed my breast. And yeah, and I jumped away, pushed his hand away and kind of slapped his hand. And I said, no, because he didn't speak any English. And he kind of chuckled, and I was really flustered and taken off guard. So I walked out, and at the time, I thought he was a monk. I didn't know. Later I found out he was married, actually, to a Tibetan woman back home and had children, but I thought at this time in his life he was a monk. I was kind of naive. (laughs) So that was shocking, but even then, it's not okay, right? That even though he wasn't a monk, it doesn't mean that that kind of behavior is appropriate, especially for a teacher (laughs) to a young woman, Yeah, you know, probably 40 years younger than him. And so what ensued for me was very painful because I confided in one of my Dharma sisters, one of my friends there. I said, please don't tell anybody, but I really need to talk to somebody about this. And so I told her what happened. Well, she was so upset that she told a lot of people. And it caused a huge division in the community. And I was called back into this teacher's room with the translator about a week later. I was still there trying to figure out what am I going to do? You know, because my family was involved. I hadn't quite told my mom yet. 
And I was still wanting to go along as if, well, this was just kind of a silly thing, you know. But I wasn't feeling good at all. But I was there, still involved with the community. And he calls me into the room and he chews me out through the translator and tells me that I am ruining his Dharma activity because half of the community has left because of how angry they are. And so he's blaming me for disrupting his, quote, Dharma activity of raising money so he can create a big stupa in Eastern Tibet and, you know, Buddhist shrine reliquary in Tibet. And so he's putting the blame back on me. And it was a very confusing time for me because I was young. You know, I was in my early 20s. And I said, I'm not trying to ruin your Dharma activity. You're the one who made the mistake. You shouldn't have done that to me. And he wouldn't have it. And so basically I left the Sangha. And my parents did too, eventually, and everything. Okay, so what happened for me was it made me feel very disillusioned with the path. And I almost left Buddhism altogether. But then what happened was I went to India, and I studied with some wonderful teachers. And I continued because my interest in it went beyond that small yet powerful and hurtful event for me. But I became very disillusioned with studying with men because it was painful for me and I didn't want to enter into that dynamic again. Yeah, and so, yeah, sense. yeah. So then I met Lama Tsultram. She was a woman. She was like me. She was a Westerner who was devoted to Buddhism in a serious way. She had had children. I had, by the time I met her, I was pregnant with my first child. So I found that I was very drawn to her as a role model. And so in 2004, I did a Chud retreat with her. And after the retreat, I said, how can I help you with your work? I'm very much also devoted to elevating the voice of women in Buddhism because I think that we have a lot to give. And I think that the tradition is out of balance because of its patriarchal focus and women not being empowered to teach to hold the lineage, to have authority within the tradition. And so ever since then, I've been doing this. And I feel really good about it. I feel, you know, some teachers will say, oh, it's dualistic, being a feminist or focusing on women. But it's not. It's just an attempt to elevate the voice of women so that there's equality. And one could say, well, isn't thousands of years of patriarchy dualistic? <laughs> Even the, the historical Buddha himself must have been involved in the same dualism since he had a lot of different teachings about women and we could say perhaps a really bad attitude about women. That's a great question. I've really thought a lot about that. Even though Buddha, you know, 500 CE, resisted ordaining women as nuns, the story goes that his stepmother asked him again and again and again, and finally, at the urging of the Buddha's assistant, Ananda, did he change his mind and say yes. And he never said that women could not attain enlightenment or full Buddhahood. He never said that. Later, the sutras in various sutras that were written down 
began to use more of the vernacular or viewpoints on women that was really prevalent in India at the time and before the Buddha's life as well, that women are basically their husband's property, they should obey their fathers, their husbands, their brothers, their sons even as they grow older. All of that seeped back in and you see in some sutras language saying that women need to be reborn as men before becoming fully enlightened Buddhas. But the Buddha himself didn't say that. But he did resist it. Yeah, Yeah, he did resist it. And I'm not totally giving him, you know, kind of sounds like you're giving him a free pass. It kind of sounds like I'm giving him a free pass. But who knows why? But what I speculate based on my reading is that at the time already, his teachings were very revolutionary in many ways no God, no self. And then he's ordaining thousands of monks. And so it's shaking up and challenging the social structure. And he knew that if he was to ordain women also, it would really go against the grain and shake up the social structure in terms of families and so on. And some say that that might have been his resistance. But the irony is he did give women more vows than men. And he did say that they needed to obey the monastics so that even if a five-year-old newly ordained monk comes into the temple, that monk, because he's a man, would be able to sit in front of the women monastics and receive the alms and the food first. So, yeah, it's not a great history. But the thing that is interesting to me is that There's no record of the Buddha himself saying that women in a female form cannot become enlightened. So that's interesting. And it's not until the Mahayana and then later the Tantric era where women are more elevated. And in the Mahayana, the middle period around the first century CE, teachings are saying that men and women can attain full Buddhahood, that you don't have to be a monastic in order to attain full Buddhahood. So perceptions began to change. And then in the Tantric period, you see full-on empowered women as teachers and mentors for men and women. Yes, and you seem to be of the opinion that I share, which is that Tantrism was originally its own movement, independent of the Vedic tradition or the Buddhist tradition. And it seems like the female focus or even a strong positivity towards women is something that came along with the tantric tradition itself into these highly patriarchal traditions. Yes. Yeah, I do share that. I've written papers and done a lot of research on this. And what I find is that certain well-respected scholars like David White posit that Tantra in and of itself was its own movement, its own tradition that infiltrated both Vedic tradition and later becoming what we know of as today called Hinduism. Of course, they didn't call themselves Hinduism. It was an English labeling of the tradition of the time of the people who practiced certain religious traditions of the Indus Valley, the Hindus Valley, you could say, Hinduism is an English label like Buddhism is. So the Vedic tradition was infiltrated by these earlier, one could say pre-Aryan or linked to Dravidian culture and Dravidian traditions that existed in India before the Aryan invasions came down. The Aryans came from the north, the northwest you could say, and brought in the whole idea of the caste system, which literally means color. So differentiating people based on the color of their skin, that didn't exist in India before the Aryans came. And so 
Yeah, it seems that the ideas of Tantra, the image that comes to me is emerge up out of the soil of India because it never was lost. And it influenced both the Vedic tradition and the Buddhist tradition and Jainism as well. Yeah, that book by David Gordon White called The Alchemical Body, I believe that's mm-hmm. the title. It goes into yes. this in great detail, very fabulous work. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, yes. I just want to clear the deck and say, so... What is it like for you being a woman in Buddhism, and what would you like to see change? Yeah, I think that my experience with being able to study with a woman was very powerful for me, and you see this also happening with diversity as well. You know, people learn from and connect with people who look like them, yeah? And so by having a role model a woman teacher of color, a man of color, different backgrounds, also different ages, is very important so that we can see ourselves in them, you could say. Of course, there's also the magic of the foreign, <laughs> like people with the Tibetan Lama. There, There's such a charisma or the foreignness of it is so magical and enticing. But then if we really drop down and start to inhabit our own capacity to awaken, I find that we also need to find or at least have echoes or role models in the world that help draw that uniqueness out. Like, I remember, I realized in my early days of really meditating, the early 20s of sitting, meditating a lot, I had this realization, I have idealized the awakened person as an old man with a beard. And I will never be an old man with a beard. I just, I might grow a beard as I get older, but probably won't. I won't be a man unless I do a gender, you know, transition, which now is more possible. But if you don't want to do that, then why, you know, I had to burst that illusion and start to find examples of symbols and beings and teachers and stories that reflected more of my capacity and who I am in this particular lifetime. And so I think more of that is important, teaching, cultivating, empowering women to have that leadership is very important. And that's what we're doing here at Tara Mandala. You know, Lama Tsultram herself was a trailblazer and wrote Women of Wisdom in the 80s, the first book of its kind of She told her own story. She told the stories of great women masters of Tibet in that book, and that was very groundbreaking and opened up many doors for a lot of us. And also within this small, you know, apprenticeship program that Lama Tsultram has founded here at Taramandala, about 75% of the apprentice teachers and authorized teachers are women. And so it's not that we don't welcome men and love men, you know, and non-binary and transgender and welcome. What my experience is, is that as women's voices become more available, women's perspectives being told more and more, because we have been, you could say, the underdog for so long, we have this natural interest and capacity to also recognize that there are other underdogs and other people in the world whose voices have been suppressed and need to come to the mic, you could say, come to to the forefront. And so that, in my experience, as I get more 
exposure and have more leadership capacity, I want to help other people do the same. And I think that men have that capacity to do that as well. And as a privileged person in a male body in this lifetime, I would like to invite the men to take advantage of their privilege to welcome and help boost and expose people, help uplift their voices, whereas in the past they didn't get that opportunity which is, I think, what you're doing in this podcast with many of the people you invite in. We can only hope that that is <laughs> happening. I'm, I'm curious, beyond this very important quality of understanding the position of the oppressed and hoping to bring that voice forward, what other qualities do you find are noticeably different in a women-run and very women-friendly sangha? Mm. It's a good question because we always grapple with internalized sexism, right? Internalized racism. And that's something I'm really interested in asking myself and my teachers and my peers is how have we internalized the patriarchy? What kind of structures are we buying into in order to have more stature or have a seat at the table, so to speak? So, I want to wake up more to that. You know, Lamed Sultram has been so innovative in breaking down those structures and really speaking her own voice, no matter how hard it has been in this first wave, you could say. And I want to go even further and really look at hierarchy, look at the power dynamics. And especially, I think that women have a capacity to do that. In my experience, you know, I don't go to a lot of other Dharma centers, so maybe I can't really compare it to others in that sense. But what my gut feeling is, to answer your question, is that there's more of a relational experience here. The way we structure our sanghas is using the structure of the mandala, which is a circular structure. You know, there's a center and a periphery. So it's not a vertical structure. It's a horizontal structure. And so all of the people on the sangha committees have equal say, and we come to agreement based on consensus. So you have the central position, which is the Buddha family. That might be the teacher, the authorized teacher in their community. And then you have the position of the East, which is the Vajra. And that is a person has to do with curriculum development and education. So each direction has different themes, and so we have our own structure like that. And I'm more interested in the horizontal way of relating rather than the vertical, and I think that you would feel that in our sanghas and feel that at Taramandala more than maybe others. That sounds really interesting. I'm curious, in a lot of Tibetan practice, there's this very archetypal gender binary type visualizations, a man and a woman, both cisgendered, both, you know, involved in these polarities. How do you work in your group with people who don't want to do those kind of visualizations because they are gay or they're non-binary gendered or they just find it oppressive in some way? Are you reimagining these practices in a way that's more open for people? Yes, and there's still a lot of work to be done with that. But as this issue becomes more and more prominent in our community, these types of innovations, I think, are very much needed. I think the important thing is to recognize that the sacred masculine and feminine within tantric Buddhism more has to do with qualities rather than actual gendered 
embodiment. And so even somebody who's gay or lesbian can cultivate the opposite within themselves, so to speak, as a way to bring more balance. So, of course, there are problems with these kind of categories and adjectives that we attribute based on our cultural conditioning of what is feminine, what is masculine. And so that's an interesting area to explore. But, you know, traditionally in the Tibetan tantric practices, the monastics, say there were a bunch of men in the monastery, they would visualize themselves as a female deity at times in different practices like Vajrayogini. And there wasn't such a hang-up about that. There wasn't so much of a kind of solidified identification onto what's masculine and what's feminine. And so there are practices where we imagine ourselves as a male and then supplicate or pray to a female deity. There's the opposite. We imagine ourselves as a female deity and supplicate or pray to a male deity. And then there are practices where it's called the yabyum, where you visualize or imagine yourself as in union with the so-called consort. So if you're the female, you could imagine male, male, you could imagine female, and then you switch it too based on what the practices are. And the whole point is to realize and cultivate the balanced dynamic of the yin and the yang within oneself. And I think there is much room to grow in terms of people. For example, we have some Sangha members who are non-binary. And on certain days, they may identify more with the masculine. On other days, they may identify more with the feminine. And so what we would say is on the day that you choose, you know, and then explore what it feels like to embody that quality on this given day. And then on the next day, if you identify more as the opposite, then explore what it feels like to embody more of that. But then, of course, there always needs to be this understanding that on the absolute level, there is no gender. And that's the teaching of Buddhism, is that on the relative level, we have subject-object, black-white, male-female, you and me, this kind of binary construct, but that that ultimately isn't real. That the absolute in the absolute state or absolute realization, all of those dualities collapse. The traditional phrase in Tibetan is collapsing the cave of dualism. So the structure of dualism collapses in this moment of opening into full awakening or even just a taste of awakening when experiences the non-dual state. And so that's when the genders fall apart, the structure collapses. In most tantric sadhanas, that is the goal of the completion stage of practice, is to realize non-duality. Well, as we talked about earlier, against the stream, just completely collapsed based on a sex scandal with the founding teacher. And we've had a Shambhala community struggling greatly with sex scandal with their teacher and actually some of the other teachers in the tradition. And then we've got at least two, maybe three major, major Tibetan teachers, including Sogyal Rinpoche and other big figures who have just been embroiled in massive sex scandals. So what is going on here, Chandra? Why do we have these major teachers in the Buddhist tradition falling prey again and again to some kind of real trouble with their sexuality? 
presumably these people have some level of awakening and something to teach, and yet they are really struggling and yeah. causing real harm. And what, what, what do you think is going on there? Of course, I'm not omniscient, and I'm not an authority on this type of dynamic, so I can really only speak from my experience. And when you ask that question, what comes to mind is that these people have somehow lost their way, and that the power that they have accrued as a result of their position, and also the structures that support that power dynamic within Buddhism, and primarily Tantric Buddhism, does lend itself to this type of misconduct. But it doesn't only exist there. And of course, we have the Catholic Church as a horrible example of this as well. But I'm going to stay more within the Tibetan Buddhist situation right now because I feel more familiar with that. And as I said earlier, I've experienced a certain degree of that abuse and the repercussions of that abuse and had to find my own way as a result of that. First of all, power does tend to corrupt. I think that studies confirm that. And so the teacher needs to be very careful and very honest and very disciplined. And what is happening with Tibetan Buddhism coming to the West is that Westerners, I'm going to speak from my American perspective, I don't know if it's the same in Europe, I would assume it is and in other parts of the world, there's a kind of a magical uh, projection of a distant land of enlightened beings. And so we give up our power of judgment to these foreign teachers who seem very majestic and enlightened. And we lose our sense of right and wrong. And then when something like this happens, we get confused. We question ourselves. Am I a good student? Why can't I transmute this into awakening? You know, the whole teaching is about transmuting adversity into the path of awakening. Well, this can be real adversity at times when we're confronted with abuse from our teacher who we've idolized and put on a pedestal. But a lot of us know that as soon as you put somebody on a pedestal, they're instable, and the eventual reality that they'll fall is pretty imminent. And so one thing that I want to share is that it is so important for the student to not lose themselves in the face of the teacher and to actually know that built into the tantric tradition are very clear instructions and guidelines on how to choose your spiritual teacher. Particularly in the tantric practices, this is so important because we are taught to see the teacher as the Buddha. And that even if they fart or <laughs> make a mistake, we're supposed to see that as enlightened expression of the Buddha. And the idea behind that is pure perception, meaning that everything that we see around us looks one way, but if we can shift our perception, seeing nature as light and sound, seeing trees, and hearing, like for example, the chirping of the birds as mantra, 
seeing everything as a play of light and energy, that that is called pure perception, that we're actually tapping into the way things really are. And through extension, also seeing those around us as enlightened beings, like see your partner as a dakini or enlightened feminine expression of mind, or see your male partner as a daka, an enlightened masculine expression. So we're working towards pure perception. And it said a lot of profound transformation can come through that. And it's beautiful, beautiful teachings. But if the teacher is not holding their integrity and holding their vows and their discipline, then this can go wrong really fast. And I think that's what we're seeing with the Sakyong and the Shambhala tradition, Sogyo Rinpoche and many other teachers. I also want to say that, of course, there are many good teachers still teaching out there with high integrity. And of course, we tend to only hear about the negative. So I also don't want to give people the perception that tantric Buddhism is destined to fail and is a horrible, unsafe place. For the most part, there's a lot of good in it. And I'm experiencing that. And I have experienced that with many teachers, both male and female. But the one thing I'd like to say is just share with people some of these traditional guidelines for how to choose a spiritual teacher, because it's there. I think a lot of Westerners just don't get access to it or don't even know about this. And generally what they say is that before choosing a tantric teacher, you should watch them, examine their behavior for at least three years before becoming their student. And then if you feel like they have integrity and they're walking their talk and they have compassion and wisdom, then you ask them, can I be your student? And then they are supposed to watch you and examine you for three years. And then at the end of that three years, so six years total, if both of you still feel like it's a good relationship, then you watch each other for another three years. <laughs> so it's a nine-year process of really committing to a teacher-student relationship. That is the traditional way. I mean, if you think about it, we don't do that. Nobody does that. Somebody goes to a teacher and gets enamored by their teachings and goes up to them at the end and say, I want to be your student after just a couple hours. Isn't that exactly what you did? Well, I did that after about four days of retreat and then having read and followed her life and career for many years before that. Mm. But that's a good point, Michael. I didn't do that nine-year process. But there are times when, you know, you've been on the path for a while and you have a sense of what integrity looks like and what integrity doesn't look like. And uh, you can make a judgment that doesn't have to follow that exact structure of the nine years. But what that structure gives us is a sense of perspective of like how to slow it way down, slow it way down and really take your time before you commit. So, yeah, I don't think I've done that full nine-year structure with any of my teachers, but it helped me understand that this process needs to be done very delicately and conscientiously. It's certainly something that our culture hasn't adapted to well so far. I remember working, of course, in a guru tradition in India, 
and spending a lot of time in India around people who were with my teacher or with other teachers. And it was really almost shocking to me how frank the Sangha would be about the teacher's behavior or other teacher's behavior, even though they understood the viewpoint of the teacher is God and, you know, their farts are golden, <laughs> you know, uh, nectar. But they also would be like, yeah, he hits his wife or yeah, you know, she makes this or that mistake. And they were very honest about it. And I realized that that's what it looks like when a culture has had gurus for hundreds of years. Like there's an ability to cut through the dream of it and that that was necessary feedback for a lot of people to understand like who was trustworthy and who wasn't. And they were just so uh, frank about it. And I think that the thing you're bringing to light, which is when we as Americans or Westerners encounter Tibetans or encounter people from these other cultures who are part of these very mystical traditions, we tend to get very starry-eyed about it and yes. not have those frank conversations that we need to have about who's really doing what behind closed doors. That's so true. It's so true. And there are ways that people cope with these kind of seemingly paradoxical qualities of a teacher. I guess you could call it compartmentalizing. You know, for example, I work very closely with my teacher and I see that she's very human. And I like that, actually. I'm fine with that. I don't need a perfect pedestaled teacher. Given my experiences, I actually prefer having a teacher who feels human and I can learn from in various ways. How does she grapple with challenges or running an organization is very challenging. So there's lots of opportunities for learning in that. But then when the teacher is, you know, teaching, one can shift into another state of mind. This teacher is teaching the beautiful teachings of truth or leading out of suffering or how to become a more integrated human being. And so letting go of all of those other memories and opening to receive the blessings in a way that feels very integral and beneficial both for student and teacher. And that's a very interesting dynamic, but it needs to be done with intelligence, with agency, and a wakefulness within it, not a blind belief, but a faith that is born from testing out the teacher and seeing how do they handle things under pressure. So I wanted to also share some interesting qualities of teachers that one should kind of bear in mind when we're looking or studying with teachers, looking for teachers. Do you mind if I share this? Because it's so interesting. Please share it. Okay. So, you know, this is really under that category of the first few years. When you meet a teacher you're interested in and you think could be a good guide for you and your spiritual path, here are some things to keep in mind. Asking, does the teacher have a quality of purity? And that's not like in terms of being totally perfect in every way, but in terms of vows, so not breaking his or her vows to be a benefit to others, to be honest, to not have sexual misconduct, to not become so intoxicated that you're completely drunk and can't control what you're doing. These are basic vows that all teachers and within Buddhism take. Those are just a few examples. So do they have that kind of purity in a good sense of having integrity, I guess you could also call it. The other one is, are they learned? Are they well-educated in what they're teaching? 
basic. You know, do they know the sutras, the tantras, and so on? And then do they have compassion? That's a very important one. And not just for their close sangha, but does that compassion extend to all beings? The exact wording is their heart should be suffused with compassion in a way that this teacher loves each and every being like they were his or her own child. This feeling of love and compassion for all beings. And then have they integrated and realized the teachings? Are they really putting what they're teaching into practice? And then have they gained some kind of fruit or realization based upon that practice? The other one is, are they generous? Is their language pleasant? And then do they have the capacity to teach each individual according to their needs? So adapting the teachings, getting to know their students. And then basically, do they walk their talk? Do they act in alignment with what they teach? So these are basic things to look out for when you're looking for a teacher, when you're following a teacher. And then there are more within the tantric tradition too. You know, if it's tantra, then there's some more higher bars that need to be held. So for example, in the situation of the Sakyong, the son of Trungpa Rinpoche, I read his apology letter, his acknowledgement to the community after the accusations were made public. And he acknowledges that he was given power too soon in his development. And one way he coped with the dynamic of being famous, you could say, and having all of that power, is he turned to alcohol. And when he drank, he would do things that were bad. And so this is why abstaining from intoxication is a very important vow within Buddhism, because when we get intoxicated, we lose our control, and we may do things that are hurtful for others. And so he acknowledged that he had broken that vow, and that was a part of why he behaved in that way. And so that's an example of how power can corrupt and how it's important to really, it's our job as students to hold the teacher to that high integrity, just as much as it's the teacher's job to hold the students to high integrity. It's a two-way street. And I think in our culture, as Buddhism's coming to the West, we need to really talk about that side of the equation. I was just in a teaching with another Tibetan teacher, wonderful teacher, total integrity, 18 years in solitary retreat. But when he taught about the student, he said all these things that the students need to do in order to be good students, didn't utter a word about the responsibilities of the teacher. And I think that's what's missing, is we need to really talk about this and students need to know these are the qualities that the teacher should have. And if they don't have them, then don't study with them. Don't give them that power. That all makes sense, Chandra. And yet some part of me wonders whether the entire model of the guru and the student Mm -hmm. is applicable to us Mm -hmm. in the West or applicable anywhere at all anymore. It seems like it has beautiful elements. And I understand from being, you know, for many, many years in a guru tradition myself, thankfully a female guru. For me, that was really wonderful. And at the same time, even coming from within it and understanding that it can be positive, it seems antithetical in so many ways to what we hope practice will do for ourselves and people in our culture. And also, 
we see so many problems and so much difficulty coming up with this particular dynamic. And it definitely begs the question, can't we come up with a better way of teaching and learning this stuff? I think that for most people, this more tantric approach to seeing the guru as the Buddha is not suitable. I don't think it's necessary or appropriate for most people in the West, in our modern culture. And so I would like to explore that and see what are other ways we can not throw it all out, right? But keep elements of it that are beneficial, but that don't make the power dynamic so out of balance and make the student and the teacher so vulnerable to abusive power. And the earlier teachings, the Theravada and all the other traditions of the earlier phase of teachings from the original time of the Buddha for 500 years after him, then the wave of Mahayana, all of those, that middle era and the early era, none of them required seeing the teacher as the Buddha as a prerequisite for awakening. However, all the teachings do say we need to rely on a spiritual teacher, or the Kalyanamitra is a wonderful idea. Kalyanamitra in Sanskrit, it is the spiritual friend. It's somebody who knows a bit more than you do and can help you on the path. Maybe they know a lot more than you do. Uh, the Anamkara, as it were. Yes, tell me more. What is the Anamkara? It's a similar idea, really. It comes from the Irish... Christian tradition way back when, like six, 700 CE, when monastic Christianity was sort of hiding out in Ireland, they developed this system where older monks would help younger monks work with their spiritual growth. And they called it the Anamkara or soul friend. I learned this from John O'Donohue, the wonderful Irish priest that was a friend of mine before his untimely demise. And his book on the topic is just wonderful. But that idea of Kalyana Mitra or the spiritual friend always reminds me of Anamkara, the soul friend. That's beautiful. I didn't know about that. I think that it's a really important aspect of our community and of our personal growth and progress along the path. They say even that children learn better when they learn peer-to-peer there's something about that that shouldn't be underestimated. And it's not to say that you want to study with somebody who just knows a little more than you, because of course you want to study with somebody who's knowledgeable and has done a lot of the practices for many, many years. But also having more of a peer-like relationship or this spiritual friend, I think is a really wonderful way to learn about yourself and learn about the other and to take more responsibility, you could say, in your own process and then gain more confidence in what these profound and sometimes esoteric teachings mean to you. So I do think that we don't need to believe that the guru is the Buddha, especially if it doesn't feel right for us. There are some people who may be okay with that, and they may have the good fortune to have a teacher who maintains all of these wonderful qualities I just listed and can benefit and open up a channel to receive blessings through that so-called pure vision. 
because it is a co-creation, if I might say. There's the story of the old Tibetan grandma who became enlightened based on her reverence of an old dog's tooth. Do you know that story? I'd love to hear it. This is such a great story. So it goes like this. There was a, a Tibetan man, a trader, and he would go once a year to India over the Himalayas, gather up his goods and bring them back to Tibet and sell them. And one year before he was to set out on his journey, his mother, an elderly, very devout Buddhist practitioner, she said to him, Dear son, India is the birthplace of the Buddha. Please bring back a relic for me to honor and pray to in my prayers. And so he said, sure, mom, I'll do that. And he went to India. He did his business, came back. And as he was approaching the house, he could see the house in the distance. He realized, oh, no, I forgot to get a relic for my mom. So when he got there, she said, welcome back, son. Where's my relic? He said, I'm sorry, mother, I forgot. And she said, okay, next time you go, you have to bring back a relic. And he said, sure. So the next year he goes and then comes back. Same thing. As he's approaching the house at a distance, he realizes, oh my God, I forgot the relic again. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then when he got to the house, he said, mother, I'm so sorry. I forgot. I will not forget again. And she said, if you forget one more time, I'm going to kill myself in your presence. Please don't forget and he said, okay. So then the next time he went to India, same thing. He does his business. He's coming back. And at a distance, he sees the house and he realizes, oh my goodness, I've forgotten my mother's relic. What should I do? He looks around on the ground to see what there is around him. What can he bring back as a relic? <laughs> and there's an old dog corpse rotting, uh, dried out, actually. The, the bones are dried and the skull is there, and the teeth are showing, and he realizes, oh, I can take a tooth from this old skeleton, wrap it up in some silk, and I'll tell my mom this is the tooth of the Buddha. And so he does this. When he gets home, he gives her the relic. She's so happy. She places it at the top of her shrine and makes offerings, lights incense and candles and makes offerings. Every day she practices and honors this old tooth as if, you know, she really believed it was the tooth of the Buddha. And it's said that at the moment of her death, she achieved rainbow body, full liberation in the tantric tradition, common experiences for the physical form of a practitioner, great practitioner's body to reabsorb back into the five elements, which are represented as the five lights. So this old grandma, who nobody would have known was a great practitioner, through her devotion to this old dog's tooth, became awakened in the bardo, in the intermediary stage between one life and the next. And so the whole moral of the story is, it actually doesn't matter if that teacher is an actual Buddha or not. It doesn't matter if that relic is really a relic of the Buddha. If you have devotion and faith, if you open your heart to such a great extent, then you will receive an equal or that extent of blessings. And so that's an interesting story. And I think about that when I think of the whole guru-disciple dynamic. 
Um, of course, that probably brings up a myriad of other questions that you could ask me. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly it points to a certain openness of heart that is required. And at the same time, it seems to point away for the need for any embodied human being to be the focus of that devotion. That's true. It said the most important thing is the teachings, not the teacher. And that's an interesting thing. This is more from the earlier teachings, the sutric teachings in Buddhism. So you could say that the tantrikas flipped it on its head and said the most important thing is the teacher, not the teaching. But they don't say that. They don't go to that extreme. Of course, the teachings are very important, like I just said in my list of qualities of the teacher. But the teachings are what are preserved through the writings of the sutras. And those, you know, change, of course, from maybe addition to addition, but shouldn't necessarily change. That those are the preserved words of the Buddha in terms of the sutric teachings, at least, the sutras. And so I think that statement recognizes that we will always encounter teachers who have less integrity than we would hope. So rather than putting all of your faith in just the teacher, pay attention to the teachings. What are they teaching? What do the texts teach? And keep the tradition alive with integrity as much as possible by focusing more on the teachings than the teacher. What do you think about that? Well, as I said, I feel like I was lucky and had a good experience, and yet I also you know, don't practice in a guru tradition anymore and feel like it's that wonderful, open devotional heart and the feeling of almost like a reawakening of innocence that can be, for me, it was very hard coming from a very intense punk rock, iconoclastic, skeptical, jerk kind of background <laughs> to, you know, really begin to just hear what to my ear were fairy stories and be told to be loving. And yet uh, over many years of working with that, I found, you know, that my heart really could become innocent again and open again and feel a kind of non-cynical and non-ironic actual sweetness and compassion and love and just plain old kindness. And that was, for me, a kind of a miracle. I mean, I wasn't so jaded that those things didn't exist. They were certainly there previous to that, but they were kind of surrounded by this crust or rind of a lot of sarcastic, cynical defendedness. And so, you know, that kind of milieu or environment of devotion really actually worked for me. And yet, as time went on, I realized that it was also encouraging a kind of abdication of any sense of responsibility for anything, mm. encouraging an abdication of any kind of intellectual clarity about anything, and a whole further list of things that I just couldn't really get behind. And so I think the story that you told, which I, of course, love stories like that, points to the thing that, for me, that I brought up, which is you could have devotion to your husband or wife or your partner in life. You could have devotion to the tree in the yard. You could have devotion to a rock. And as long as you're bringing some purity and kindness and openness and, let's say, freshness of mind to that, it's going to have the same quality of awakening. There's a kind of archetypal force and power that's available when 
the devotion is towards someone that you are literally putting on a pedestal and who's literally wearing a fancy hat and who is literally covered in silk robes and so on. It does have an archetypal resonance for human beings that is quite powerful. And yet it's absolutely not necessary. And as you said, most people it's not going to work for. And as we see over and over again, at least in our society, very often it goes horribly awry. In my opinion, it's time for us to just be done with that whole way of learning and teaching, at least in the West. I am very close to agreeing with you on that. Of course, it's an individual matter. Some people might not want to be done with that completely. And who are we to decide that for them? But in our teaching and our writing, I think there's a lot of space and potential to move things forward and evolve this in a very interesting way through conversations like we're having right now. When we started talking, we were talking about against the stream and turning into its own new sangha. And I sort of just threw out the title that they had come up with, which is the San Francisco Dharma Collective. But I have to say I'm extremely excited and happy that they are taking the reins as the students to say, we're going to set up the space and invite teachers. And it's okay that there's teachers, but this is not a community that's about any particular teacher. I feel really honored that they want me to teach there. And yet, even more excited that it's this new way of working, at least for this group, a new way of envisioning the whole thing, which is that it's more of a community, it's more of a sangha, or we could say a um, spiritual community, and it has its own horizontal structure, and that there is no uh, room for some kind of charismatic teacher to come in there and begin abusing people. Furthermore, there is room for people to have open interactions and to come into their own power and for women and people of color and people of various gender identities and non-identities to come in and be welcome and find their own expression there. Mm. And even with that, there's still respect for the teachings and still respect for teachers. And of course, we need to learn from people who already know some of this stuff. But, you know, a few months ago, I was joking with them about in class where I kept calling it the Soviet of meditation teachers and deputies. We were talking a lot about this flat structure. Mm. So I just found it really beautiful and fun last night when they declared the Dharma Collective, the San Francisco Dharma Collective. I'm like, there it is. You guys did it. It's fabulous. So we'll see how that goes. That's very exciting. It warms my heart to know that they rallied around and were able to take this next step. And I think it's an important step in the history of Dharma coming to the West, quite frankly. What do you think should happen or could happen or are you working to have happen with the role of women in Buddhism? It's just been so fraught for so long. You know, the whole controversy where Theravada uh, nuns don't even exist, supposedly, even though there are thousands of them. They aren't allowed to be ordained formally. There's the whole you know, intensely patriarchal structure of all three vehicles. I mean, what is really to be done and what would you like to see happen, Chandra? 
I feel like education is the most important thing. Giving Himalayan, Tibetan, Indian, Asian, and Western nuns the opportunity to study with the best teachers, to become teachers themselves, to go on depth retreat, to be inspired and encouraged to put these teachings into practice and realize them. I think that's really the most important thing because then that changes things from the inside out, from the foundation up. And if a woman has a title, fine, you know, it's a part of the structure. Or if she just wants to be a yogini meditating in her home or a cave, that's fine too. All of it is welcome and all of it needs to happen. And I think that encouraging through various means and supporting women to do that is of utmost importance. Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo is a, another great example of a Western woman who became a Tibetan Buddhist nun. She wrote a book called Cave in the Snow, about 12 years of retreat she did in a cave in the Himalayas. And her mission is educating and giving nuns who are Tibetan, Indian, Nepali, opportunities for higher education. So that's her focus. So more people like that, more women from the West who have that kind of background or privilege, you could say, of experience of what's possible in an integral way, helping those who have less support and experience in that realm to become elevated in terms of their view, their way of thinking. The, the prison is really mental. I taught English to Tibetan nuns in Dharamsala in 96, 1996, and they were so shy. Most of them were so shy, they wouldn't even try to speak the lesson that I was teaching them. They'd put their books in front of their faces and giggle. There's this kind of quality of shyness and insecurity that limits women across the globe, really, in terms of their personal growth and evolution and curiosity and confidence. And I would tell the nuns, I would say, wait, don't you want to be able to communicate with others and tell them your story of coming out of Tibet and exile, of talking about your trials and triumphs and all of that? Yes, they want to. They would nod their head. Yes. Well, then you've got to have the guts to make mistakes and speak out loud. Use your voice. And that would inspire them. And then I'd come back a week later and they'd be shy again. <laughs> you know, it was like <laughs> little tiny steps week by week. And some of it rubbed off on them, I think. But it was an interesting experience for me to see how just that kind of basic fear of speaking, fear of using your voice can hold you in a prison, can hold us in a prison. And I think we need to start breaking that down. That's my answer. And I'm sure there are a lot of other great things that need to be done, people are doing, but that's, I think, education, just like in all other spheres of people who have been underrepresented, underprivileged. Education is very important. Thanks for coming on the show, Chandra. Okay. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Michael. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. 
This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California from April 14th to the 19th. I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct U. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash sign up or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>